This is Getting the Bread with Carla Cafe. On this podcast, we'll be diving deep with members of the Carla community about what makes them tick and their journeys to getting their bread. All right, I'm here with Adam Shapiro. Yeah, yeah. We just, you know, without recording, I think we just basically had a one hour full podcast. Full podcast. Full po- you, you guys missed some good stuff, but hopefully we'll try to get back to it and cover it. Oh, there's plenty where that came from. I first met Shappy through zoe winkler that's right yeah you remember she she so zoe was like she's been on this podcast before by the way oh that's awesome and then you know she was probably one of our biggest promoters she was she was like the biggest carly cafe champion of she all was time. like one of the first non oh, that's so embarrassing that's, that's all good that's my wife <laughs> you want to pick t- up yeah. no well oh, okay <laughs> katie i'm currently filming a podcast did you need anything <laughs> she couldn't get her daughter down for a nap and that's like i keep telling her there's there's tricks to that you have to be like i feel like there's parts of parenting where you really have to be sort of evilly manipulative like you What's have your to trick I, well, there's just a million tricks and i feel like when it comes to the nap it's really about giving options and keeping those options within like two things like do you want to take a nap right now or you want to take a nap in one minute and like just like, confusing the shit out of the kids <laughs> So that you ask them all these questions and ultimately the answers to those questions will add up to like them putting themselves in the bed and going to sleep for their nap. It's the illusion of choice. That's what I mean. And you you want to give them all these choices. And I don't know. It's just I'm very good at that specific part of parenting. And Katie's not good at that part of parenting. (laughs) But then there's like being there emotionally for the children. And that will be all Katie because I, I'm a robot. I'm a, I'm a dead mechanical robot inside my body. <laughs> so, you know, that's parenting too. You gotta, you depend on your partner to hope, hopefully you guys can cover all of it between the two of you. Yeah, exactly. But I'm good at getting them to go to sleep. Also, I think it's easier for me to get them to go to sleep because they don't want to be with me as much as they want to be with mommy. Okay. You know, yeah, often yeah, my yeah. two-year-old is like, good night, daddy. Yeah. Leave. I'm like, you don't want to kiss? You want one more song? She's like, I don't like your voice. And I don't want any more kisses. You've kissed me 17,000 times tonight. And so she's just like sending me out of the room. And then when Katie puts them to bed, it's like, oh, the, the, the last thing they want to do is stop hanging out with Katie. So I will say that I have an advantage in that, in that department. I have a hard time believing that. I'm telling you. They're like, bye, dad. Bye. Well, you're always welcome here. Thank you. So. Yeah, I appreciate that. I love it. We were talking about Zoe. Yeah, so she introduced us. A while, I mean, how long ago was that now? I mean, it was at Boots. Two years ago. Probably two years ago. And I think similar to now, you just you came by to Bootsy. It was just for a sandwich. You That's right. Up, I was like, up, I'm bringing pretzels. I'm grabbing up, a sandwich. We ended up talking for an hour and a half. Yeah, we were just fast friends. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's the first time I've seen you since then. So. But like, that's it's like we didn't even need to see each other since then. It was yeah, just we, like, boom. We pick up where we left yeah, off. Yeah, we pick up right where we left off. I mean, you're carrying a lot of weight in the conversation, like a lot of entertainment. I'm not really, I'm just an open ear. You know? I really, this could just be an hour monologue, but the audience doesn't want that. Mm. Zoe's father, the great and legendary Henry Winkler, yeah. has been my mentor in Hollywood for years now. I don't think I knew that backstory. This is, this is, and honestly, it's funny. My relationship with Henry and Stacy is very much with Henry and Stacy. I, I, I met Zoe like years later when I started the pretzel thing and she like came to my house. That's the like, first time I don't time you really met her. know the younger Winklers and the grandchildren as much as I know Henry. 
How did you get to meet him? I was do- well. First of all, Katie was doing an episode. My my wife Katie Lowe's was doing an episode of Royal Pains, in which Henry Winkler was acting on. Okay, and this was like a couple months before we were going to get married. And they were like, that's a wrap on Katie Lowe's. And everybody's clapping. And Henry's like, hold on one second. I'm going to my trailer and I have something for you. And he brought Katie a lovely wedding card with $100 in it. And he said, "This spend this in Italy on your honeymoon dinner on me and Stacey. Oh, my God. It was God. just like the nut. You know, you, you hear these rumors about certain actors in Hollywood, you know, Keanu Reeves is one of them where it's just like, oh my God, he's like the nicest person in the world. He, Keanu Reeves just like every day just helps old ladies onto trains and things like that. <laughs> and Henry Winkler's also one of them and he's just like, Henry Winkler's the nicest I've heard that mensch on the planet. And then this was just like proof in the pudding. So she comes back, we were living in New York at the time, she comes back to the apartment and she's like, look at this. And i like, who gave you a hundred bucks? And, he, and she's like, Henry Winkler gave it to us for our wedding. I'm like, that's insane. Like they had just met on the show that week. That's so sick. And so we wrote Henry Winkler a thank you note. And I told Katie that I would get Henry Winkler this thank you note. I will, I will, with my Hollywood connections, I will get him this note, even though we don't know his address or, you know, his number or anything like that. And about a year after we got married, the, the thank you note's still on my desk. And Katie's like, we're approaching that sort of, you have like a year after yeah. you get married to thank right. people. And I was like, I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to figure it out. And then I just happened to book a movie called Larry Gay, Renegade Male Flight Attendant. Okay. And Henry Winkler happened to be my co-star in the movie. What? And I showed up to the set the first day and our AD was like, have you met Henry? And I was like, oh, and I was like, just like Henry, I was like, hold on. I have to go to my trailer. I have an envelope for you. And I gave him the thank you note and he was like, who's this from? And I'm like, actually, it's from me uh-huh. and my wife, Katie Lowe's. And he was like, Katie Lowe's. I love Katie Lowe's. <laughs> I loved working with her. You guys are married. I'm so happy for you. And after that movie, Henry just became my boy. And he's worked several times with my theater company since then. We've gone to their house for many a dinner and lunches. Henry and I have like a sort of like a few times a year we meet for fried chicken. What? Where? It bounces around. There was a place called Black Bottom that he loved in the Valley that just closed. What? Which we're really upset about. But I did a bunch of research on the fried chicken they made there. And they actually made a specific type of fried chicken that's like licensed to restaurants okay so it's it's a so it's company. not only available there yeah there's mm-hmm. actually other restaurants in los angeles that use this specific fried chicken and so we're gonna go there next okay i think the next place we're gonna go to is that is that kettle kettle but it's it's different than that's this different is different than the but i've heard it's amazing okay it's Where called kettle you, cooked. I it's, know what you're talking about. In it's Culver, in Culver City. Yeah. Culver, yeah. I've never been there. I've heard good things. Henry was actually the person who told me once. He said we were at a dinner. And first of all, it was a really fun dinner because I'm a huge sports fan. And Al Michaels was at the dinner. No. No way. Al what Michaels. What a dream. And Henry said, your guys are coming over for dinner on Saturday night. And there's a what guest. What was it? How many of you? Six of you? There was, was like it? maybe eight of us. There. Okay. Like there was, it was really cool. There was a guy who had created Royal Pains. He was there. A couple other friends that we sort of knew. And then like he was like, and then there's one person I'm not telling you. It's a surprise. And I show up and it's Al Michaels. Oh my God. And I, and then Henry like made sure that I sat next to Al at the dinner and I got to talk to him about every sporting event I've ever wanted to like ask questions about. It was awesome. <laughs> and at the end of that dinner, I was kind of back at the other end of the table with Henry and Henry said, listen, Adam, I've got good news and bad news for you. He's like, the good news is you're really good at this acting thing. So you're going to work forever. 
Uh-huh. I'm, I'm here to tell you that. Okay. The bad news is, is you're really good at this acting thing and you're going to work forever. So, <laughs> and, he, and he's like, what I mean by that is you're not going to get run out of this town. You're always going to get hired. and You're always going to work. But if you're a working actor in Hollywood, you are inevitably going to have big, long gaps of not working. Okay. That's just how it works. He's like, okay. I booked the Fonz and I didn't work for 30 years until Adam Sandler put me in the water boy, you know? So like, he's like, there's going to be big gaps. And so find yourself something that you're passionate about that is not Hollywood related and use that to sort of emotionally and, and artistically inspirationally lean on when you're not, when you're not shooting. And I was like, man, I have no idea what that would be because I'm an actor and that's all I do, you know? And he's like, well, it'll come to you. Maybe it'll come to you. Five, six years later, the pandemic hits. I start making these pretzels, selling them out of my driveway. He comes to my driveway to pick them up. And he said, Adam, the pretzels. The pretzels are your thing. He remembered giving oh, you that advice, though. Because we had revisited that, that conversation, conversation several times. And I was batting around things. And I would, I would sort of tell him, like, yeah, I'm starting to make a lot of more websites. I'm starting to do a lot more graphic design. I kind of like marketing. I like social media. And just to tell him that I was still thinking about what he said, you know. And when the pretzels thing happened, he was like, you found it. Wow. And so often when Shappy Pretzel is like in a lull or I'm like sort of like burnt out, I like think like, no, I, I need Shappy Pretzel, not just as a side hustle, not just because I love it, but because there are going to be times in my acting career when I'm not doing shit. Uh-huh. And this is going to be a great thing to have. So can we start with your acting career? Yeah. Let's, let's, let's talk about whatever. So. You want to give us a little background? Oh, we can give, get in mental health, whatever you want to get into. <laughs> okay, well, typically what we do, the, it's called getting the bread. And yes. so it's kind of the journey. Oh, yeah. It's your journey to how you landed in your, in your career. Yeah. So how early do you want to start? Well, let's go. For, for, for As far as acting goes, I was not an actor as a kid. I liked making people laugh. I would only be in the musicals in my high school because I didn't make... Because when I auditioned for the basketball team, like I didn't get it. And, and, you know, a lot of people would say, you probably didn't get on the basketball team because you called tryouts auditions, which is true. So I would always be in the musical because I didn't make the basketball team. And I would always have like no lines and I'm in the chorus, I'm in the back or whatever. I never really took it seriously. Uh-huh. Then I got to college and I was a government major because I kind of wanted to be like a politician. I wanted to maybe work for like a lobbying, you know, firm or in college. Where'd you go? Where'd you go? University of Maryland. I okay. wanted to go to a school kind of near DC. So I could okay. like, you know, be there and like. That's and, an interesting aspiration for, I think, a high school. Yeah, I was like, really into it. Like I was on. What were you into? I was in exactly. student government. What, I was. But what were you into? I was into like, what would I have wanted to be a lobbyist for? Like you were thinking about lobbying? Yeah, I was actually. So I, when I, growing up, I was really into my summer camp. I went to Camp Harlem, Jewish camp in the Poconos in Pennsylvania. I feel like you told me about this. I love this camp. camp. I love this camp. It was like, every, it was everything to me. All my friends. It was like first time like I ever dated girls. Yeah. All of everything. And I was obsessed with it. So I was really into like Jewish youth group stuff. And one of the things I was really into was sort of like, Jewish activism like that was it was a big part of our camp like you learned a lot about mm-hmm. activism you learned a lot about sort of these Jewish pillars like Takuno Lam making the world a better place mm-hmm. Sadaka charity mm-hmm. and I was just like very into that so I I spent weeks going to DC with these like student groups and working with local politicians to get things 
sort of changed and a lot of them were sort of in the vein of like Jewish tradition. Okay. And I just was really into that. I was like, I don't know, maybe I'll work for like a, a lobbying company that like helps Israel or something. Okay. I, like I didn't know. I was okay. just like all, yeah, so I'm at university of Maryland. I want to be a politician. I'm studying politics. And then I realized I kind of hate it. And I, and I get a flyer for like auditioning for a sketch comedy group. And I was like, man, I, you know, like at the time, Adam Sandler and Ben Stiller were like my idols. I'm like, yeah, that would be amazing to do that. I still wasn't thinking I would be an actor, but I just thought this would be like a great avenue for my sort of need to make people laugh. Like, it's just like, a, like, that's what I do. And because it was incessant. You had it already in your Yeah, I was all I was going to be doing comedy and making people laugh and doing outrageous shit and dressing up and putting wigs on and like if it wasn't gonna be at a sketch comedy group, it was gonna be at a fraternity party, it was gonna be in my apartment, like it was gonna in, be in somewhere. the office. In yeah, office. it was gonna be somewhere. And so I you know, like the, it it just one of those things that come into your life and you know, you just feel this draw to it. And you're not even exactly sure why, and you've never done it before. But like, I was like, I have to be in this comedy group. And I auditioned, I got in, and it became like a huge part of my college life. And through that, a bunch of people from the theater department saw me perform, and they were like, You're an actor. Like, you're not, you should be in a theater major. And so I was like, All right, I guess I'm switching my major to theater. My parents were very cool about it. They like, yeah, I have an actor. I have like one actor in our family who's who's a cousin of my mother's. Okay, married to my mother's cousin is Bill Pullman, the film star. And so, like, there was like a glimmer of like my parents being like, "I guess it's possible." Bill Pullman's like been in Independence Day, so I mean, like, maybe Adam can make it work. And so that was a good thing for me is that there was like an actual like example of this working out. The only problem was I didn't know anything about theater, acting, anything. And so when I auditioned to be in the theater department, I just couldn't get in. I like went to one audition, didn't get in. Second audition, didn't get in. Now I'm like, oh man, I'm running out of time. I actually, I need to get in the next audition room. I'm not going to be able to like graduate on time, you know? Mm -hmm. And so my father, who's a professor at Temple University, was like, oh, you know what you do? You go to the head of the department knock on his door during office hours and say, this is what I really want to do. Tell me what I need to do in order to be successful in the next audition. And I'm like, good idea, dad. Mm -hmm. And I go in and the head of the acting department, this dude, Professor A. Bear, I said, you know, Professor, can I come in? I'm Adam Shapiro. I've auditioned for you a couple of times and I didn't get in. And I just kind of worried about timing here with like, I need these classes in order to graduate. And he was like, oh, yeah, Adam, come on, sit sit down. And I sat down, and he came around his desk. He sat on the edge of the desk, and he said, Adam, acting. And I'm like, oh, shit, this is it. This is what I need. Mm -hmm. He's about to give me the wisdom I need to, to succeed <laughs> as an actor. He said, Adam, acting is not for everybody. No. Yeah. No. <laughs> and he was like, but, you know, we've got costume design here. We've got scenic design, lighting design. And I was just like, holy shit. And it was both the worst thing that could have possibly happened and the best thing that could have possibly happened. You know, it was, it was horrible because, like, I've never had anybody tell me I can't do something in my life. You know, I've had a great life growing up, and I, I was never told. I was a terrible basketball player, yeah. but everyone in my life encouraged me to continue playing basketball. You know what I mean? Because I loved it. But I was tiny and Jewish and skinny, and, like, there was no, there was no chance for me in, in, in basketball. And then all of a sudden, I got this guy telling me that, that dude, this isn't going to work. And so I call my father back, and he goes, okay, I know who that guy is. Every, every department in every university has that guy. Uh -huh. 
But they all, there's also an opposite of that guy in every department. <laughs> there's the gatekeeper, that guy. Uh-huh. And then there's sort of the champion of the students, of okay. the undergrads. Find that guy. And so I asked a bunch of students who I should talk to, and they sent me all the way down a dark hallway at the bottom of the theater. And I found this professor named Professor Scott Reese, and I told him what had happened. And he was like, come in. And he's like, what do you know about theater? What do you know about acting? What do you, why aren't you getting in on these auditions? I'm like, I don't know anything. And he starts pulling out Neil Simon plays. And he's like, these plays will have characters that will be perfect for you. Find the play you like. Find the character you like. Come back. We'll work on it, and you'll get in next time. And so it was exactly what I needed. Both professors' meetings were exactly what I needed. I needed someone to light a fire under my ass like mm-hmm. Mitch did. And I needed somebody to like, kind of like open the door to this really strange, mysterious world of, of acting. Yeah. You know, which I didn't know nothing about. And so I got in and I graduated with a theater degree, as inexperienced as I was when I graduated. Well, what were some of the main things that you learned with that second professor? He is my mentor even to this day. He officiated my wedding with Katie. Like he's he's been very close. And a lot of the things I learned from him were like a lot of acting specifics, but but more importantly, I thought for me was to learn how does this business work? How do you walk into an audition? How, what do you dress like when mm-hmm. you do it? You know, it's like how do you prepare yourself for an audition? How do you prepare yourself to be a successful actor? Like he would give me really concrete notes. Like you need to have a piece of your wardrobe in your closet that is only for auditions. Mm-hmm. So like you're never going to get into a situation where it's like, oh, I have an audition in two hours. I have to go home. Oh, I'm going to wear that one shirt. Oh, fuck, it's in the laundry. It's mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. that shirt is not a shirt you wear other than when it's when you're auditioning. Okay. Right? And like little things like that, like when you make a bunch of money doing your first commercial, it's going to seem like you just made $50,000 for one day of work. But you didn't make $50,000 for one day of work. Mm-hmm. You made $50,000 for every fucking audition you, ju- you, you had already been to which could be the last two years. Yeah. So really you made $50,000 for the last two years of audition. Yeah, yeah. So you made $25,000 a year. That's not a lot of money. Yeah. Don't go buy a Cadillac. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So like he was very knowledgeable about the way the business worked outside of the school. And then he was also a great professor and was very, he believed in me and he could look beyond how green and inexperienced I was and really help me. What, what did you need to hear about acting specifics? Acting specifically, I will say the most I learned about acting came way after college. I thought that not that they can't, not that they weren't teaching me things about acting in college. I just wasn't mature enough and I wasn't ready to really understand what it is they were telling me to do. Okay. In hindsight, I think back to my acting classes in college. And I'm like, shit, I would love to be in one of those classes right now. That'd be really helpful for people that have never taken any acting classes whatsoever and don't know anything yeah. about the craft, what what are what are some? You know, I mean, you break it down into like it's nuts and bolts. It's like you know, what are the things you need? What are the tools you need to pull off a believable performance? And then when it comes to theater, a sustainable performance, right? It's like you could sing the craziest song in the world that's really hard, high notes, and you could nail it. But if you're not a trained singer, you're not going to have a voice to do it the next day, let alone eight times a week, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So it's like you need to train your voice. You need to train your body. And you need to make a connection between your body and your voice and your face and your inner thoughts and your soul. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, it's in in acting class in college, you're, you're really working on that connection, the connection between 
the script, how you interpret that script in your heart, in your gut, and then how you then present that script to the audience, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like that sounds simple. It's like, well, you read the script and then you memorize it and you say it out loud. But there's a lot that goes on in between those three steps that separate the greats from the people that you don't want to see act. It's, is it like kind of like an empathy? You have to, it's like empathy of like putting yourself, yeah, I mean, trying it, to feel like that person. It, yeah, in a weird way, like acting classes are very similar to the things you do later in life that are like self care. You know what I mean? Like you, you need to, it, it's a lot of it's like therapy. You need to understand why you are the way you are so that you can control how you interpret the the character, how you interpret the text. And I was way too young to be diving that deep into who I was. Mm -hmm. I wasn't ready to do that. I wasn't, I, I didn't have time for that. I was like too busy, like getting drunk and partying and having fun and mm -hmm. writing sketch comedy with my, you know, like I wasn't ready and there were actors in my department that were amazing and they were totally ready to go that deep. Like, but I would be in like a movement class, movement for actors, right? And we would like stretch and do yoga and strengthening. And we would, we would practice using our bodies to tell the story. That when you're talking to somebody. I feel like I've seen that in Barry. Oh, 100%. I That's Henry it, Winkler yeah, teaching yeah, that class. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's like, you, 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 you have to sort of do exercises. How can you use different parts of your voice to help play this character? Uh, How can you use different parts of your body to help play this character? There are m great moments that we've seen in movies where we're like, oh, that performance was amazing. If you were to dissect it, a lot of times it's because that performance was dynamic. That actor was using their body in an unforgettable way. The way he hunched over, the way his neck was kind of like crooked, the way he sort of talked out of the side of his mouth. You know, it's like, I was just watching Batman, but I'm thinking about like Tom Hardy playing Bane. Like, you know, it's like he chose that voice. He's a, he's a trained actor and he chose a voice that he, not only could he do that voice, but he could sustain that voice for the entire movie. That sound that Bane, makes, Bane was making through that mask is scary. Yeah, right. So it's like, He's adding to that character by developing a sound for that character. You can do that with your body, with your voice, with your face, with the tone of your voice. There's so many tools that an actor can use. And then in college, basically what they were doing was like teaching us about the possibility of those tools and how to use those tools. And I that, wasn't ready for any that of that That made me shit. think of something. So is the goal of acting... To to be realistic, in terms, I know it. I yeah. know I know it needs to be. I know you need to be able to buy it. Believable. So it, it needs to be believable when you're. But but it is it supposed to be beyond what is like ordinary, real day to day life? Are you supposed to elevate things in a way that's believable, but is also a little more animated yeah. than, than what would happen in, in real life, than it, the way these things play out in real life? It, that's a great question. That is, that's a, different actors will have different ideas for that. Different directors will have different ideas for that. And different time periods will have different ideas for that. You know, right. it's like in the 70s, for example, you started to have the idea 
behind hyper-realism on film. You know, when you got the Dustin Hoffman's coming into Hollywood, it was like, I'm not going to overact. I'm actually going to do things really internalized and subtle. And I'm going to talk like a real person, right? Mm -hmm. And like, all of a sudden, all the film stars were like, oh, wow, this is a cool method. Where it's like, I'm going to actually play this real. But if you go back to Shakespearean times, the job of an actor was to project to the back of a theater with no microphone. Right. The job of an actor was to entertain, to be a clown, to enunciate, to be able to wrap their, their mouth around words in a way that could make them sound poetic. Right. So it depends on the type of story you're telling and the type of medium you're in. If you're on Broadway, your job is to show up eight days a week and make this thing exactly the same for every single audience that comes for the run of the show. Right. And then if you're, if you're in a movie, that's a drama. That's a real kitchen sink drama, the kind of fly-on-the-wall story about a family and the struggles. Your job is to like play the truth of that. And then, and then with all acting, in my mind, there is the element that you have to be aware that there is an audience. There, there's there's got to be an awareness that you can't act in a bubble and and not not think about the fact that someone's going to be watching this and that oh, there is an overall story that you're telling. It's not the concern of the actor to tell that story. It's the concern of the actor to tell the truth. Yeah, I was I did a movie called Mank a bunch of years ago with David Fincher, and Fincher said to an actor that was sort of struggling with this one moment of the scene. Fincher came over and he said, don't tell me what the line means. The words proximity to each other already does that. Just say the line, right? And it's like such a simple note and like easy for me to hear because I wasn't in the hot seat. I wasn't the one struggling and sweating through my costume. Uh It was the other actor that was in that position. But I was able to hear what Fincher was saying and it really like, Boom! It struck a chord in Break me. Break it that down to me because I don't. It it, it I don't struck a chord. What what Fincher is saying is the actor's job is not to tell the story of the scene. The actor's job is to play the truth of the scene. The writer's job is to tell the story of the scene. Right. So if you have a bunch of actors all telling the story, that's where you get like overacting. That's right. where you get okay. like I get so it. So he's dude. telling the actor to do less. Do less. And I've had instructors my entire life, acting coaches, directors, professors tell me, do less, do less, do less. But I don't know what that means, right? A lot of actors don't. Like, what does do less mean? Should I like put my, should I like keep my hands in my pockets and move my face less? I am a very expressive person, Yeah. right? Ultimately, what they're saying is, it doesn't matter what you're doing. Jim Carrey is a very expressive person. He has put in some of the finest acting performances I've ever seen in my life. And it's not because he kept his Truman Show, for example, unbelievable performance. He's big in that movie. He's, he's moving his hands and his face, and he's Jim Carrey. Yeah. But what he's doing is being really truthful to who that guy is. So I don't think what he's doing in that movie is big. It doesn't feel that way. Right. It feels like Truman is a real person in this really weird situation. And I think that's what do less means. What, it doesn't mean the literal do less move less, speak quieter. It, what it really means is stop putting a hat on a hat. Stop telling me how I should feel and start 
being truthful to the character and then I'm going to feel how I'm going to feel. If the writer's doing their job, the director's doing their job and the actor's doing their job, you're going to be able to manipulate the audience into feeling the way you want them Uh to. uh Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. But if the actor starts taking on the role of the yeah, director and the writer, they're trying to carry the weight of how do I how do I make the audience yeah. feel the emotion? Yeah. But it's like you don't, you don't you don't need that one specific actor in a scene to make you feel that. exactly. It's why but, when you watch a movie that a single tear is so much more effective than a blubbering mess yeah, of yeah, streaming yeah. down their face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you don't cry, so the audience does. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You don't laugh. So the audience does. Right. You don't do that. You let the audience do that. So the funniest things often are played super, super straight. No one on The Office ever laughs. (laughs) That's your job as the audience. And it's when Steve Carell does, just tells the truth, just says the line without cracking a smile or laughing, it encourages a huge laugh and a smile from the audience. Right. So... That's like the genius. And and that's a hard thing to do because you have to be, A, really secure in, in your work. You have to trust that what you're doing is enough. And as a person, you have to trust that you're enough. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of things that you need to like do, do this acting thing. But and, ha- and I wasn't ready for it in college. I learned all that stuff on set. But, but how do you create a separation between you and the character you're playing? I, I never do. I don't. I, I, I've never been worried about creating a separation when I most of the time when I play a character I think okay what would I do if I was an astronaut okay you're casting me as an astronaut you're gonna get Adam Shapiro as an astronaut <laughs> right okay if the writer's doing their job and the director's doing their job I don't really have to like transform into an astronaut but but the Adam Shapiro that grows up wanting to be an astronaut is maybe a more serious person. Is a more serious person. And hopefully the writing, the writing shows that. So like, I'm going to be a more serious person because the lines I'm saying are more serious. Right. Right. And I have to trust that that's there. It's on the page. I don't have to do too much more to it to make me be believable as an astronaut. There might be some subtle switches. If I immerse myself in space and NASA and, and astronaut stories and read books, I'm going to have a different perspective on space travel. And that small perspective, that, that knowledge I have is probably going to come out in my performance. I'm going to say a line a little differently than if I didn't know what I was talking right, about. Right. And so I don't have to do much other than immerse myself in the world, understand who my character is, know who the backstory I'm not going to start changing my voice and changing my body. I, I, normally for me, and this is me personally, Daniel Day-Lewis would have a very different answer. He would say, I need to completely transform into this character. This character is not going to have an ounce of Daniel Day-Lewis in it because I don't believe that Daniel Day-Lewis can play this person. Okay. Yeah. But that's Daniel, and that's why he's the greatest actor in the world, and that's why he's method, and that's why when you watch Daniel Day-Lewis, it is a transformative experience. Uh-huh. That's not necessarily my goal when I'm acting. Uh-huh. I'm not trying to like turn into the person. I'm just trying to act like the person and have the audience believe that I'm that person. But are you speaking differently? Like, What are you doing differently? Sometimes. If the, if the script calls for it. If it doesn't, I'm not going to force it because I feel like I, my, I like that my art it's like if you were a painter, right? Uh-huh. You might have a different concept for the painting every time, different subject matter, but you're still going to use the same style. 
Right. You're not just going to go from pointillism to to impressionism. Right. Right. Like you have a style that you paint in. You, that's majority of your paintings are going to be that way. Right. If I get cast in a movie and they're like, you're Abraham Lincoln now. Well, then I'm probably going to have to change the way I talk. Mm -hmm. Abraham Lincoln doesn't have like a Philadelphia accent and he doesn't sound like me. And he's, but astronaut. It, it, but it, astronaut quick, doesn't matter. Quickly do astronaut. <laughs> do it, it would sound like this. Okay. Would, uh, we need the buttons to be pressed in the uh, front of the uh, spaceship. <laughs> right? <laughs> like that's, that's how I would sound. Okay. I'm not going to like change it because I'm like, I couldn't be an Adam Shapiro couldn't be an astronaut. I believe I could do that. Why not? Yeah. That's what I was interested in. I would still sound like this. So, I think unless you're really needing to change it, like this dude's from the South. He, he's going to have a Southern accent. Like you can't play a slave plantation owner in yeah, the right. 1800s yeah. and sound like you're from New York. Would right? you ever go for that role anyways? You know, it's funny. I, I would be terrified. I remember I was doing a movie called Steve Jobs with Michael Fassbender and we were out to getting drinks and playing pool. And in, wait, in the movie or in real in, life? In, in real life. We were, okay. we were out after we were shooting. And I said to Fassbender, I was like, dude, can, I, can we please at some point during the next couple of months geek out about acting? I just have so many questions for, for you because I, I really think Michael is like one of the best. And one of the things that's like mind-blowing about Fassbender specifically to me is that the range of different characters he's played are so epic. And like, you know, I had just watched 12 Years a Slave that he was in and he played that slave owner, plantation owner. And he, if I were to get an audition for that role, that's like, you're a plantation owner, you've got a thick Georgia accent, you're an alcoholic, you hate yourself, you sexually assault the slaves. And when you're doing so, you're, you drink into it, you're crying and your tears are splashing on their, on the wounds of these slaves. I'd be like... Yeah, I'm going to pass on that audition. <laughs> I don't think I got that in. Right? Okay. I don't know how I would do that accent. I don't know how I would pull off those scenes. I don't know if I can make my tears splash on the back of the... <laughs> like, I don't know if I could emotionally handle that. Uh -huh. And I said that to him. I'm like, how did you know as, like, somebody from Ireland? Like, you know, how did you know that you even had that accent and that character in you? And he's like... He's like, I didn't. I go, I read a script. I find the most challenging role in it. I fight for that role. And then once I get it, I, no one works harder. And I figure it out. He's like, you would figure it out. If you got a role in a major motion picture where you had to have a big accent and a big difference and a, and a body change and you have to walk with a limp and you got to do this and that, you're going to figure it out. <laughs> Don't be afraid of it. Go after those roles. Did you take that to heart? Would you do would you do that? I did take it to heart. It was an inspiring thing for me to hear. I don't necessarily know if I would still just like go after that save plantation owner. Role. Like, I don't want to fuck up this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> like that might be a bit of a leap for me right now in my career. But you would but you would take maybe something what, what since was that conversation? Yeah, I think what was inspiring about that specific conversation was the was his answer. Not necessarily that I would I want to do that. But what I was expecting his answer to be was, I'm a wizard. Yeah, yeah. Right. I'm superhuman. Yeah, right. That's how I do it. Yeah. And then I would be like, well, fuck. Yeah. I can't do this profession because I didn't realize to get to a certain level, you actually have to be a superhero. You have to be a wizard. You have to be some sort of magician. He was the best of the best telling me, oh, I, I have no idea what I was doing. I just learned it. I just tried. You know, and that was what was inspiring for me. 
the idea that it's about hard work and commitment and dedication, not about the fact that he is some sort of superhuman special person. That was inspiring to me. So like for basketball, I understand what it would mean to like go train to become better at basketball. Yeah. But what are what are the tools as an actor to work on your craft? One of the things I always say is like actors act. If you're if you are not making a ton of money acting, you just moved out here, you're like, I'm an actor or I'm an aspiring actor. You know, first thing I tell people when they say that, I'm like, there's no aspiring actors. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's only actors and there's not actors. Mm-hmm. To say you're an aspiring actor is a confusing term because it's the only art form where that's required to say. I don't know what it is about Hollywood, about acting, but it's like there's this stigma that if you're not making a ton of money and you're paying all of your bills from acting, that you're an aspiring actor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No painter says I'm an aspiring painter. Mm-hmm. They're just a fucking painter because they paint. <laughs> doesn't matter if they sell a million paintings. Like... A kid in college who's learning painting is a painter. Right. But for some reason, there's this stigma that if I'm waiting tables and auditioning, I'm an aspiring actor. I'm like, no, you're an actor. And one of the things actors do is they act. Yeah. The only thing that's not going to make you, the only thing that is going to actually make you an aspiring actor is if you're not working at all. Right. You don't have to be getting paid to work as an actor. You can always be studying. You can always be in a class. You can always be in a play. You can always be putting up your own work and doing monologues and working on plays. So one of the biggest ways, tools for an actor to become a better actor is to act. You have to do the job. Mm-hmm. The, you know, writers say the same thing. It's like, if you're not writing every day, you're not, being, you're not going to become a better writer. Right. It doesn't matter if you're selling that script. It doesn't matter if what you're writing makes any sense. <laughs> you have to put pencil to paper every single day and you will become a better writer. I think the same thing with acting. I think every single time I've been on a set, I've learned a huge amount and brought that to the next set with me. Yeah. And every time I step into therapy and I learn a lot about myself, that helps me as an actor. How? I think the better you know yourself, the easier it is to perform. Why? I think when you know what tools as a person help you be your best, inevitably that's going to help you on set. It's like, I know what I need. Like when I was doing a Broadway show, I knew emotionally what Adam Shapiro needed to be ready for that curtain to, to come up at eight o'clock. Mm-hmm. I knew what that was. I knew what, it, what my diet needed to be. I knew what my sleep schedule needed to be. All these, th- th- they're not teaching that in acting class, right? Mm-hmm. That stuff I learned by growing up and by learning about myself and in therapy. You know, that this is what Adam Shapiro needs Mm -hmm. to be at his best. and uh, But that's regardless of what Adam Shapiro is doing. Yeah. It's to be his best at whatever Adam Shapiro wants to do. And so it's like, as an actor, the other thing that is important is to do other things other than acting. Yeah. Because what your job is, is to to portray life. So the more life experiences you have as an actor, the easier it is to portray those things. Right. If you've actually stood up in front of a classroom, like I have as a teacher, which I have the first few years I moved to LA, I was a teacher. Now, every time I audition for a teacher, I book it. It's just something about my experience as a teacher 
that when I walk into a room, everyone's like, that's a fucking teacher yeah, right there, right? right? And I've played seven teachers. Yeah. I'm on a teacher right now on a show called Never Have I Ever, and it's so easy for me. And a lot of that is just because I've had that experience. Yeah. And I've worked in offices, so when I'm working in an office on a show, it doesn't feel that weird, mm-hmm. and I'm very comfortable. I think that's the reason why when you do book something or you are about to play a character that is so different from yourself, it's, it is important to immerse yourself in that world as much as you can before you, you show up on stage or on set. Yeah, right. so that you, you you believe it. Yeah, if you believe you know what you're doing in a classroom, the audience is gonna believe right. it. Right, but if you're like, I don't know what I do, what I'm gonna do with this character. I've never been in a space shuttle, and I'm gonna. If if you're feeling that way, the audience is gonna feel that way. Right. So it's like figure it out, find a place where you can like simulate being on a space shuttle. You know what I mean? Like yeah. get yourself to a point where you believe it, and then it's and then the audience will. All right, so let's roll back to you get you get out of college. You have some tools. I get out of college. I I decide I'm going to move to Los Angeles and work in Hollywood. Not necessarily as an actor, but like I'm just going to work in Hollywood. I didn't really think the acting thing was a possibility for actually. It was a dream, but I didn't think it was like a realistic one. But I was thrilled to work in Hollywood. Whatever. Yeah, what, what were you like doing? Production assistant, or maybe I could be a writer, or I could be a director, or I could work behind the camera, whatever it was. And so when I moved out here, I got a million jobs. I was teaching Hebrew school. I was working at night. Where at? What school? At Temple Beth Hillel. Okay. Shout out Hillel on Riverside <laughs> Valley Village. What, what? All my kids are now like 30 years old. My bar mitzvah. Like I ran into a bar mitzvah kid of mine recently. And, you know, he's like, this is my son. I'm like, that's crazy. That's sick. I was working at night as a production assistant in the casting department at Survivor. Okay. And Amazing Race and The Contender and The Menu and all these different Mark Burnett shows show called Rockstar in Excess. I worked on all these shows. I was a manager's assistant during the day. So I took care of actors, which was hugely important. I learned so much on that side. And I got that advice. One of the people I first met with when I moved to LA was a woman named Connie Tavel, who's a really great producer and manager who's from the Philadelphia area. That's how I had the connection. And she was like, listen, I think that you could totally be a successful actor in this town. Right now, you don't have a headshot, you don't have a resume, you don't have a demo reel. Mm -hmm. So right now, you're not going to be a successful actor. Like You don't have the actual business tools to even get into an audition, let alone book one. You're not going to get those things until you have more experience. It is going to be a tough thing to break into Mm -hmm. because somebody needs to hire you to get the demo reel. So how how did you... But if you don't have a demo reel, they're not going to call you in for the audition. So she said... What I would do, because you're not going to get an audition for a good year, what I would do is like be an assistant to an agent or a manager and really learn how this industry works from the inside. She's like, 99% of actors move out here. They just want to be an actor. They never understand how the business works. Because they don't know how the business works, they take not getting cast personally. Yeah. They think it's something they did. They think it's something that they might have done in the audition or what they look like or whatever. And it starts to whittle away at that person Mm -hmm. and they get very burnt out Mm -hmm. and they go back to wherever they came from. Mm -hmm. Like they don't last in Hollywood. Normally it's like she said, it's like a year for most people. It's a year of like, I didn't get any auditions. And when I did, I didn't get the role and it must be me or blah, blah, blah. blah. Mm -hmm. And they leave. Mm -hmm. And it's because they don't know, understand why actors get cast. It's not always about the best audition. It's not always about what you look like. There's a million factors as to why and how a cast is put together. She's like, learn what those factors are by working on in the agency side. Did you go get that job? I did immediately got that job. I got it. I was an assistant to a manager 
a horrible dude, horrible guy <laughs> named Gleb Kleiner, and he's sort of <laughs> you named him. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't, I don't, I don't give a shit. He doesn't work in Hollywood anymore. Okay. He he got ran out of this town, and he I think he now is a real estate agent in Florida, and I think he's doing well. I I don't know. I don't okay. I don't know much about what he's up to, but he was a really abusive, really horrible person. And it was great because every job I've ever had since that one has just been uphill. Okay. Like it was, it was like a perfect landing job in LA because I enjoyed myself. I learned a ton. I loved the job. And what I was being told by outside people was like, man, if you like this job, you're going to be fine in Hollywood because uh. that guy's the worst. <laughs> and so I, I spent a year working with his entire client. List. What did you learn about how? What I learned was like that. This is the major leagues, okay? If you want to not play in the major leagues of acting, you stay to wherever you grew up, and you could do dinner theater, you could do amateur theater, you could, you could work with kids. You could, I mean, there's a lot of things you could do and, and have a very fulfilling artistic life as an actor. But if you're moving to Hollywood to make movies, that's the major leagues, mm -hmm. right? So what I learned very quickly is that everyone here is playing in the major leagues. So there's not a giant talent difference for the people who are working they're all very good okay and what is actually the difference between the successful working ones and the ones that are not working isn't necessarily a talent gap it's a it's a gap in professionalism it's a gap in confidence and self-destruction mm -hmm. what i watched is some actors on my client list were self-destructive like Casting's calling. You're not at the audition. Oh, I'm late because my car broke down and my yeah, girlfriend. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you got all that. And I didn't print out the sides and I, I went to the wrong place because I didn't look at the email. What You got that actor. Jesus. And that's a lot of actors. A lot. How do they not realize that that is like. I, you know, I think acting is. It's, 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 and I think this of, of a lot of artistic fields. Like there's a reason artistic fields, artistic people go into those fields. And a lot of times artistic people don't also have the same set of sort of skills that's going to be successful in a business. They're imagining that the only thing that matters is, is their is their talent and their acting. And so they think all this other shit that they're doing around it doesn't matter. And they and maybe they don't even think it doesn't matter, but they just don't even think of it. They they're not aware of when you were a half hour late to that audition and you showed up looking like shit and you were a little bit of a wreck and you walked in and you brought all this drama and all this sort of craziness from the outside world into that audition room. Everyone in that room was going, I'm not hiring this dude. Obviously. I don't care how good this dude's performance is. I don't want to work with this guy. Yeah, because he seems... it's only going to be marginally better than this other guy. Oh, my God, that, yeah. That comes with no trouble. No trouble. It's, yeah. The difference is going to be very, very subtle, right? Yeah. There might be the exception to the rule, just like in sports or in like any other business where a person is so talented and so exceptional that you're willing to deal with the insanity, yeah. right? And there are actors we know that are like that, right? Yeah. But for 99% of this business, it's going to be a combination between he nailed the audition and he seems like a lovely person who I would like to actually go to Australia with for six months and trust that he's not going to fuck it up. Yeah, right. Right? Yeah. So... There's so many actors on oh our list, God. I would see, that were so super self-destructive. And right off the bat, it's like they're not going to be a success for so many reasons. And it has nothing to do with their acting. But as you say it, it's so obvious. It, it, yeah, because there's so much go that goes into... I mean, not that I know anything about movie making or filmmaking. It's, it's, 
But it's like you have a set amount of time to execute this thing. And everyone needs to be on you point. You can't be bringing in some crazy and person that's going to be late. You can't have one person that fucks everything up. 100%. And one person can ruin a movie. You know, so. 100%. And, and, and especially as an actor. If you have somebody who's late and not showing up and blah, 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 blah. And there's somebody who is the grip. And they're running cables for the electric, for the camera crews or whatever. You fire them and you replace them. Yeah. But you can't do that with an actor. No. You're stuck with an actor. Or if you do, it's just. You might have to fire them and re- and but, but it's but like, how could it's you a afford big mess. It? Oh, it would be, be super expensive. It would be like a huge mess. So when it comes to act, so so I saw that, and then I also saw the other side of the coin, which was not only actors that were professional and showing up and prepared and looking great and ready to go and take care of themselves mentally, emotionally, physically, but they also bring. They bring their own things to the table. They're writing themselves roles. They're starting theater companies. They're they're creating opportunities for themselves and capitalizing on opportunities that we're creating for them mm-hmm. as the as the agents, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's like, oh wow, there's the difference right there. Even that that girl is actually an unbelievable actress, but like she's all over the map and she's missed like the last three meetings we sent her on, right? Mm-hmm. And then this girl is like. Okay, she might not be necessarily as sort of like gifted of an actress as that person, but she's like a pleasure to be around, and it doesn't matter. You, she doesn't have to be Meryl Streep. Mm-hmm. We're talking about a guest star on Bones. <laughs> okay? <laughs> like, she's in two scenes. She's yeah. playing a barista. Right, She doesn't right. have to be the greatest yeah, actress exactly. in the world. She just needs to be professional, and she needs to get her work done. And so that was the biggest thing I learned. The other thing I learned there was why people get cast. I saw people get cast because they blew it out of the park where everyone was like, oh my God, we haven't even thought about the character in this way. And this guy walked in and he brought this character. It was so brilliant. He's, he's cast. And then I've seen guys crush it. And then the casting director call and say, hey, he was amazing. Everyone loved him. There is a guy already cast in the movie with the same exact haircut. Oh, shit. What? So we're not going to cast two guys opposite each other that look identical. Because it's too confusing just, for the yeah, viewer. Yeah, yeah, just not going to happen. This this character has to look a different way than the main character. He needs to have a different vibe, you know. Uh-huh. Like on like if you were to see a photo of these two, you would see the differences yeah, between yeah, yeah, the two yeah. of them. Well, that's why the guy didn't get the role. Now, my phone call to him is, hey, they're moving on. They're not giving you the role, right? Mm-hmm. He could take that like, oh, I must have fucked up the audition. He doesn't realize he nailed the audition. He nailed it so hard that they were actually considering casting him, even though he looked exactly like the guy already cast in the other role. But ultimately, the studio, the network, the producers all decided it's probably this person's going to be a different type. Yeah. Whether that's height, skin color background there's a million reasons mm-hmm. so now i'm calling this guy now i'm saying hey they're moving on you didn't get the role on to the next he could take that the self-destructive actors take that super personally they immediately say either fuck those people or oh i must have fucked up mm-hmm. either way that's a destructive yes, way of yes, handling yes, that yes. call because no no don't fuck those people they love you the next thing they work on, they're probably going to bring you in. Yeah. The last thing you want to do is create an enemy out. Yeah. 
Or if they go, oh, I must have fucked up. Now they're going to go into their next they're audition. Confidence. And they're going to sort of do things differently. Do maybe. things differently because they think they need to do things differently. And really, they, don't, they shouldn't have changed a thing. Mm -hmm. Just be you. Go in there and kill it. And so I got to experience that so many times over that year that when I actually did finally tip my toe in and start acting myself, I didn't take things personally ever when I didn't get a role. Yeah, there were times where I was super heartbroken because I really wanted a role. But never did I think, oh, I fucked that audition up. Or, or, fuck or those, those people. people are terrible. Yeah. And they don't know what they're doing. And I you always showed was, up on time. Yeah, I always. Yeah, and yeah, because yeah. I knew how to be professional and I also knew why people get cast, I also knew the questions to ask the agent who ended up getting it. Oh, yeah, that guy's Oh, really so you asked follow-up questions. Yeah, so well, that guy's really different than me. You yeah. know what I mean? What were they looking for? Did they give you any feedback that was, like, specific to my type? Or, or what, was there a conflict with schedule? You know what I mean? It's like, there's a million reasons, right? And if you know to ask, they'll give you all that they'll information. They'll give you that information. But if you don't ask, they're just going to say they went, we went they're another busy. direction. They're busy. They're yeah. busy. They yeah. don't want to get into an emotional conversation yeah, with every yeah, actor yeah, they have yeah, to call and yeah. say they're moving on. But if they know you're asking and you're just you're being chill, you're just trying to learn. Oh, yeah. They're, they're happy to provide. Yeah, yeah. What Was there a reason why they get it? Well, it's because you're shooting that movie and they're worried that if that movie goes over, that you're not going to actually be available. Yeah. And so they actually are casting somebody that is completely available. Oh, oh, it's, it's just about schedule? Great. Cool. Okay. So, on. so you start going out for gigs after that one year working for yeah, that Yeah. During that year, not only was I working a million jobs, but I was also taking acting classes, commercial acting classes, scene study, all that stuff. And I booked a commercial agent who started sending me out on auditions for commercials. And I just found a lot of success. I don't know what it was. Oh, I, I mean, I, I have an idea of what it was, but I did like a hundred commercials over the course of like 10 years. What's your idea of what it was? I think there's two, there's two ways I could answer that question. The deep, deep way is I didn't necessarily know who I was as a person. And I, in my childhood, I sort of created an alter ego called Chappie. Mm -hmm. And Shappy was super happy and he was fun and he was the life of the party and he was really funny and there was no three-dimensionality to Shappy. Uh -huh. There was Shappy didn't have bad days, Shappy wasn't in a bad <laughs> mood, Shappy didn't right. I I I shelved any sort of real feelings uh -huh. so that I could use this alter ego Shappy to like get through adolescence. Okay. As like Easy as possible. I'm funny. I'm fun. People like being around me. I'm successful. I know we want to get to the commercial part, but why Why did you need that when you were younger? I, I was insecure and sort of like I had depression and anxiety issues, and okay. I didn't know that. And okay. so I sort of developed this shappy character as like, uh, this is a way that I could sort of mask all that. Uh -huh. I could layer onto myself as opposed to revealing. Okay. Instead of going deeper, I go out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I developed a personality behind Shappy and a and a person that I was very happy with growing up. I, I never needed the three dimensionality. I I was Shappy. Cru I cruised. I cruised through high school, college, camp, whatever. Because why not? I was a person everybody wanted to be around, yeah. and I was really and I didn't have any issues. Yeah. Right now, all of a sudden, you're in Hollywood, and you're auditioning for real people who have real problems. And it's not fun and games. It's not the musical at your but high for school. But for commercials, but for a commercial that works. Shappy crush, man. <laughs> Shappy walks into your commercial audition. You're like, that dude, we want that guy on our commercial. Because I'm immediately likable, instantly confident, instantly ready to sell the product that this commercial is selling. And often, I played actually the person that wasn't selling the product. I played the person who was like from the other, like, 
some restaurants and then it would cut to me and then but it's subway and then it would cut to like the super handsome blonde guy serving the subway stuff yeah. but it was always like the moment i walked into a commercial audition they're like we don't even know what part he's going to play in this commercial but we need him in the commercial <laughs> and so shappy worked really well for commercial auditions okay. it was perfect for the grind that was commercial auditions mm -hmm. you go to three of those a day mm. if you're like a working commercial actor with a good agent you could go to 250 commercial auditions a year and that's a grind and you're booking a percentage of that two percent of those at that point are you committed to just doing commercials only or you could go yeah i was both? really happy doing that i i still didn't think tv and film was an option i mean it was a dream but i was like man i'm commercials but, pay really but well are you going for tv no i didn't have a, a tv i didn't have an agent that could send me on tv and movies i was just at a commercial uh, okay AJ. so how long did you do the commercials for exclusively about 10 years no no i would say about four years okay and then for about six more years i was doing commercials and tv and film okay but for those first four years i just drove around the city a thousand times and auditioned for every commercial ever and i booked a lot of them and they paid me enough to quit all my jobs and i became like a full-time working professional paid actor uh-huh and then I and then I finally sort of weaseled my way into getting an agent and a manager and started going in for the one line and the one word here and there on the movie and the TV show and booking that. How old and are you? Shappy at that really point? worked for those things too. One line in a in a movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just need someone to come in and kill this one line, yeah, this one yeah. joke. Shappy's perfect for it. How old are you at that point? When like in my like late twenties. Okay. And then I started to like feel like I was bumping into like a ceiling. I was I was hitting a an invisible glass ceiling that I didn't understand why I couldn't break through it. And it started to become very obvious to me that Chappie's going to book that one line, but Chappie's not going to book that fully fledged main character in that movie. Who's who goes through a lot of shit mm -hmm. and who is sad and who is happy and romantic and all these things that could, that are not just happy, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. fun, that's when the therapy comes into play. And that's when the therapy comes into play. Because you need to like dissect who is Shappy. Yeah, and who is Adam Shapiro. A, a, a name I haven't been called in 25 years. Uh -huh. No one called me Adam Shapiro. <laughs> Everybody I knew called me Shappy. Uh -huh. And people would say, your name's Adam? That's so weird. Wow, Adam. <laughs> Adam, so serious. You know what yeah. I mean? It was like, and so I sort of didn't know either. Yeah. I, didn't even, I didn't even feel comfortable in conversation being like, hey, how's it going? My name's Adam. Like, it was weird for me to say, yeah, I'm like, yo, I'm Shappy, and just boom, you know, it's like, so the nickname has connotations and sort of a, <laughs> a vibe that you don't have to explain anything else. It's like, somebody's coming, someone's calling themselves Shappy, you kind of know who this person is, right? <laughs> but like, you know, I met my wife, and she was like, I can't call the dude I'm like, intimate with Shappy, <laughs> okay? I'm going to call you Adam, everyone else can call you Shappy, I'm going to call you Adam. And then I like I started to think about it a lot in therapy. Like, who's Adam? You know, and maybe this is what's holding me back. And maybe when I find out who Adam is, uh, he's not like always happy. He's uh -huh. not always the life of the party. I mean, most of the time, maybe. But there's going to be a lot of parts to me that is like every other person. But when you when you have Shappy, and before you start like really working on, yeah, like. Are you feeling like a, a strict shift from like when Chappie is off? There is like, like 
Yeah. What, I was, what is, what, what? Well, yeah, 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 that's a really good question. I think that there was a giant shift when Shappy was off. In fact, it's called depression. <laughs> so like, you would go I from just being on and when like you're off, you're just dark, depressed. Dark, 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 And I finally, through therapy, realized that. And then, and then through a psychiatrist, realized that I actually have depression and anxiety. But that darkness would only be when you're totally alone? Yeah. So you wouldn't, there wasn't anyone you were even close enough with, would, comfortable no. enough with that you would show that no, side. I no, I think probably until I met my wife. And, and are you, so when you're like, okay, you're out, life of the party, everyone's having a great time. With mm -hmm. you. If you get home and you're alone, all of a sudden, quiet, dark, not, not. And are you processing, wait, why, why am I, I having I such often, a shift? I think often I thought of that shift as this is what's required I have to recharge my batteries in order to, to go back out at full, full charge. Are you actually? I always thought of it as like a battery charge, as a recharge. I never thought of it and as that a, And that a depressing feeling is recharging? Yes. And I always taught, I always told myself that my entire childhood, that's the price you pay in order for, to have the superpower of making everybody laugh and being the, the, the most fun. But when you table. are at that time, when you're making everyone laugh in your life, are you actually enjoying that in the moment or that's just uh, sometimes. And sometimes it was like manic. It was it's like just robotic. out of control. It's robotic. Completely. And it's not really enjoyable. No, I don't even know what's happening. A lot of times people would be like, dude, that thing you said was so funny the other night. I'm like, I don't even remember what it was. I don't even remember. That was just, I, just a, 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 a thing that comes over me and I do it. And then I go home and it's gone. And then I recharge. I do it. And then what happens is you get older and you get more responsibilities. And now you have a, a woman that you want to propose to or some man that you, somebody that you want to share your life with. And you have to start to come to like actually think what is going on here. But, but when you have a woman that you're that close to, mm -hmm. even she's not seeing. No, she saw it. Katie the, saw it. She, she started was, seeing the depressed. She was the, the first person side. to ever tell me that I need to go to therapy and that. Dude, that's because not, you needed someone else to see it. Yeah, dude, that's not recharging. That's not the price you pay to be funny. That this this stuff doesn't have to happen. You don't have to be feeling this way. You need to like go to therapy and like talk to somebody and actually work on your like social and I mean, you know, your emotional tools. Like there's ways if you start to feel depressed, you could like work out. You could like eat healthy for a couple days. Like there's ways to get yourself out of it. Yeah. I just resigned to it. I'm like, this is what it is. But, and you weren't thinking the depression is from, a, from being alone and like, oh, I just like company. You, you, never, you never took it like when you'd get home from yeah. a night out, you never processed it as like, oh, you know, I just don't like being alone. No, I, I don't think I ever did because I, to be honest, I kind of did like being alone. Even though I would be depressed mostly when I was alone, I never, I did not like being alone. I definitely, that was like my time to like, create and write and do my wacky shit that I do when I'm alone. And like, what were you understanding the source of the depression and anxiety? Be I asked, cause I think I, I, I struggled with, I mean, I, I, I'm still really high anxiety. Yeah. I had, I, I had that times of my life where I was for sure depressed and I like, but for me, like I, I could remember like my parents age, like they were older. And I, I remember I would constantly think about them dying even when I was like, eight, nine, 10 years old. Like, yeah. so like I had, I had certain things. Oh yeah. For I never me. had that. That's, that's no, like, no, no, but, but that's anxiety. But, but that's so like for a, me, that's like that. Like I had certain things that like, I yeah. think that made me depressed, but like, what were you processing the depression? Yeah. Of? I'm sorry that you, that you go no, through that and that yeah, you've yeah. gone through that. I think like, 
I feel, you know, I feel you on that. I, I think that now it's funny. Once I realized what it was and I like brought it up to my mom, she's like, yeah, I had, I had anxiety and depression. You're my mother. Like, turned out it was like, oh, it's just genetic. Yeah, yeah. Turned so out there not, was like, it's not any specific. It wasn't thoughts. necessarily specific thoughts. It was a combination between genetics. This is like, you know, I, my grandmother had depression. My mom had depression. You know, it's like there are people in my family that have gone through this and and that have taken medicine or or gone to therapy. And like, I, I just never knew any of that because like my family doesn't talk about yeah, that type yeah, of stuff. Right. And then that's the other side is that we don't talk about that stuff. It's not. Mental health and therapy and emotional stuff is just not what I was raised talking about. I wasn't comfortable personally talking about that. So that was another thing that probably led to, you know, you could say maybe I got depression from, you know, just passed down through my family, but I stayed in it mm-hmm. because of the, the, the lack of tools and the yeah, habits yeah, yeah. that I had sort of accumulated growing up. So I think there's a combination of both. And when I started to go to therapy and then eventually psychiatry and take medicine and all that kind of stuff, like I figured it out. Now I have the tools to, to fight it. And, and in doing so, I learned a lot about myself. And now all of a sudden, the past 10 years of my life, I've been in all dramas. Like I went from like <laughs> literally like only doing comedies and commercials to like the most serious shit ever. Well, like everything I'm in is like the most dramatic fucking TV show on television or it's really funny. Was there kind of like a melding of Shappy and Adam Shapiro that had to take place? Did they have it to become more It never happened until I started Shappy Pretzel Company. Literally. Really? I spent 10 years of my life trying to shed myself of Shappy. And it was great. And I learned a lot. And I became very confident in who Adam is. And I, thought, I, I became confident walking into a, a meeting or an audition and being like, I'm not in the best mood ever right now. I'm in a font, whatever mm-hmm. mood. And I'm not going to be super chit-chatty before the audition. i just kind of here to do my job and leave, right? I became confident in doing that. And I, I really fell in love with my son. It sounds weird, but like I fell in love with like who I am, really who I am, not like the, the so, alter ego. So for you, it wasn't about melding the two. It was more of shedding. It was about shedding. shedding. And then I started to realize, once I sort of shed it and became really comfortable as Adam and all that stuff, that I was missing a part of myself. That in doing that work, I had become like kind of a really serious dude for a few years. I guarantee no one would agree with what I'm saying right now. That knows me. Okay. <laughs> they would be like, when was that? <laughs> but for me, I felt that way. Uh-huh. And I really did feel like, man, I don't know how to have both in my life. How uh-huh. can I have Shappy still without relying on that? So for you, first step was complete, for you, the first step was completely shedding. Completely shedding. And it. then when you start Shappy Pretzels, and well, the kid, it naturally brought yeah, some, and I didn't do some it, elements of Shappy that felt more genuine. Exactly. I didn't do it on purpose. I, didn't, I wasn't thinking I needed to bring Shappy back. I didn't even know I missed it. I didn't know I missed that part of my life. But the, but the pandemic starts. I stopped acting. My wife stops acting. We moved back home. We got a two-year-old. We're locked down. Every, the whole world's locked down. And I start doing what everyone else was doing, which was like, let's start making food and eating our depression, right? <laughs> and let's start making food and sharing it with our loved ones to, to help them with their struggling. And, and the food went from one thing to another to another to another and eventually ended at Shappy uh, Philly Soft Pretzels. And that ended up sort of through a bunch of coincidences becoming a business 
that what I didn't realize was when I called it Shappy Pretzel, which was really just an impromptu decision when I was at Staples, I needed to make a logo to put on a sticker to yeah, put on yeah, a bag. Yeah. Uh, and incredible I was like, story. Yeah, I, I was like, yeah. Mm, Shappy Pretzel, whatever. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I didn't really think of the ramifications and the actual sort of like, and I didn't think of like what it really meant to call this thing Shappy Pretzel because I didn't think it was actually going to be a thing. Yeah. So I was like, Shappy, that's, yeah. what, that's what everybody called me, Shappy Pretzel Company. Yeah. A lot of people still call me that. So people were saying, yo, I got it. Shappy, can I get some of those pretzels? So it just made sense to call it Shappy Pretzel. And it wasn't for like months and months and months into the business when the business was created that I was talking about it in therapy. My therapist acknowledged it. They were like, she was like, you realize like you've kind of created a place for you to be Shappy, <laughs> to be 100% positive, 100% fun, selling a product, making a product, making people happy, and that it's completely sort of contained. That you can like actually, st- when you're done selling pretzels and you're done driving around in the big shabby pretzel truck and you step outside of it, you're Adam again. So she thought it was a healthier way of a doing super that? super healthy thing. To have it contained to a business and… Yeah, yeah, not even a business, but just to have something that like, that, that there's very clear… Clear boundaries. 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 That the boundaries of Shappy Pretzel were, you could see the difference between my life and Shappy Pretzel. Yeah. And that I could go be Shappy all day and sell pretzels and make them and make people happy and have the most fun ever. And then when I go back to my life and auditioning, I, I, know, I now know who I am outside of that. And she was like, have fun. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Like, enjoy it. And I was uh-huh. like, wow, you're so right. I think that's why I like it so much. Is that I get to be who I was my whole life. Mm-hmm. In a, in, a, in a safe way mm-hmm. of, and I'm not going to get lost in that and start to lose my, like, who I am and <laughs> get back into depression. And- well, does it feel, does it, does it feel, does this version of Shappy that's contained in Shappy Pretzels, does it feel any different than, like, version one of Shappy? I, you know, it, it, in a way, I have more responsibility and I'm, like, running this business and I have employees and stuff, <laughs> but really it feels the same. The pretzels are the play. Uh huh. The theater, ultimately, it's not rocket science. I make a couple pretzels, a <laughs> couple different ways, more than, a and couple. then I sell them. Yeah. Right. Uh huh. I mean, in terms of variety. Uh huh. I make a couple different pretzels and I sell them. It's a very simple transaction. Business is culture. The business is creating a culture creating a community Mm -hmm. of people that like this specific food Mm -hmm. and feel happy when they get it and want to share it with others Mm -hmm. that's what i'm selling Mm -hmm. i'm selling a chance to to taste something that transports you back to the east coast where you grew up Mm -hmm. without having to buy a plane ticket yeah i'm selling is that most of your customer base by the way no it used to be in the beginning it was all philly people like literally when 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 it was out of my house my street was just lined up with cars (laughs) of dudes in eagles jerseys it was a very specific customer base Mm -hmm. now it's it's them and california people there was a learning curve i think i had to teach people like you know california people like why do the pretzel look like that Uh why are they attached Uh why do you have to rip them apart you know it's like no, that's how we do it in Philly. That's what they look like in Philly. And you sort of had to like teach people that, that why I love Philly pretzels and why they should too. But half of my job, more than half, is not making the pretzel. It's, it's all the other stuff. It's, it's just like acting. It's like the business part's just as important as the acting part. Yeah. And like making the pretzels is hugely important. But I've got that on lock. Now it's about like how do you sell them? How do you market them? How do you make them fun? 
how do you keep customers coming back? How do you how do you keep it fresh and new? How do you do social media? How do I infuse my own personality into the company? And like, how can I create content that keeps people engaged with Shappy Pretzel even when they're not buying buying pretzels? Yeah, right. Like that stuff is like ninety percent of the job, and that's the stuff I really enjoy, and that's the stuff I actually came into. The least experience I have is making pretzels. Mm. The, the thing I've been doing for 20 years <laughs> is marketing, social media, yeah. email blasts. You know, mm-hmm. like I started a theater company 15 years ago. Like I've been doing that stuff for years. Right. So when people are like, how are you doing this pretzel company? You have no experience. I'm like, I actually have a lot of experience in everything but the baking. Right. And now I've got two and a half years experience in baking too, which is <laughs> way more than I could have said when I started. That's an interesting way to put it. Never thought about that in relation to like my business with Carla yeah. Cafe because obviously like I no, I'm not a trained chef. Right. Either. But you guys created a community and a culture. Yeah. And but but it but I, but I would also say like for me like in terms of my past that plays in is like I was working on a social media platform. Like I I was working on an app before this. And so I guess I was when I was trying to build that I was constantly thinking about what is the place of all these other social media platforms yeah why are people using them how are they interacting differently on each platform what's gonna make yours different unique? Right? And, and then so but like all that understanding and then like and then thinking about how do all the algorithms work right right so like because you have to think about creating your own algorithm and then you start thinking about well That's well how's, how's instagram prioritizing content yeah. right and so i think all of that prior knowledge like helped me understand how to like leverage instagram right? yeah for growth. like once you guys realize you had the perfect sandwich that ever, anybody <laughs> in their right mind would want to enjoy now it's like how do we get it out there? yeah exactly. and like the the tools you had created a a culture a community around you know when i first heard about carla cafe i heard about it as if it was like a religion that i was <laughs> that i was being proselytized <laughs> what, what's yeah it? yeah you uh, said it right i think you know yeah, I, yeah. I, I i i like what yeah. You haven't had this sandwich? <laughs> oh, first of all, you need to follow them on Instagram and you have to do this, do that, yeah, do that. Yeah. Do, and the person telling me about it, which was probably Zoe or Jill Lederman or uh, Lindsay, like there were so many people. I was getting it from all angles. <laughs> and you had created something that was fun. It it felt like it was, it had to happen right now. It was yeah. of the moment. Yeah, of the moment. It was delicious. So you were also getting something really great for all the fun. Yeah. And like it, it was it was like the process behind ordering it and being in, in the know and keeping up with it and knowing what the sandwich of the week was, like mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff created not the sandwich, but the culture and, and the community yeah, right. that that was gonna buy it. Yeah. You know, and so I think like that was really inspiring for me. I think, you know, Carly Cafe and a couple other sort of Things that were born during the pandemic were things that I kept a really close eye on and took inspiration for as Shappy Pretzel evolved. Yeah. And I think the hardest part of Shappy Pretzel wasn't starting it. It was, it was oh, the pandemic's ending. Mm-hmm. Restaurants Our are back changing. open. Yeah. There's a thousand other places that are making pretzels. Mm-hmm. I mean, not there actually aren't with pretzels. Yeah. There are with sandwiches, yeah. I'm sure. Right. But now, how? What does Shappy Pretzel look like outside of the pandemic bubble? What is, what is, what do I look like at, at Shappy Pretzel now that I'm back at my other job? Yeah. And so that was the hardest transition 
for me. I mean, and I, I'm interested to see what your take is, but I think the the way I was processing that was I don't I don't think Carla Cafe could have taken off the way it did in any other environment besides the pandemic. It was the perfect I think moment. It was a perfect moment where like and because in what other in what other scenario can people all across LA in the middle of the day on a weekday be able to drive to a house wouldn't happen in Beverly Hills exactly. to go get a sandwich and it's only it's only in that environment yeah so so and then and then it's like also like everything is stopped so like I all, could, all of a sudden this is your event for the day yes right to go to go pick up a sandwich yep. and what other and what other scenario is going picking up your lunch your event for yep, the day 100% and then, so coming out of the pandemic though is like okay I was really all of that was kind of like you know luck and hard work coming together for sure, right timing. but so okay so we knew that people loved the product right and like we were lucky to have this environment where so many people were able to try the product know that they love the product and to me coming out of the pandemic was like okay well all of that that made it work throughout the pandemic now coming out of it is inconvenient and so to yes. me yes so you so actually to me, had to change so things. to me it's all to me it's all about like now coming out of it is like a lot of it is just convenience sure two but this right? is the 2.0 it's like yeah, 2.0 is just about you. You know you love the sandwich. How can I make it as easy as possible for yep. you to get it? And like so, so far for us, that's just that's just the mainly it was just getting on Uber and Postmates yeah, for us, yeah, right? So people could just and get so so yeah. people could just order for delivery, and you know that's been great for us. I can't wait to be able to do that, right? I mean, I don't. What's stopping you guys? Well, we don't have our own spot, but where it's getting baked. So, so because I don't have my, because I'm making the pretzels at another bakery, yeah. I don't have people there making them all day. There's, we, we make them in the batches that we need and then we head out. So if I don't know, if a hundred people postmate, I wouldn't be prepared to send out 500 pretzels. Can I give you an idea of how to yeah. just test it? <laughs> you create another batch an an extra batch that's coming out of that fair that yeah that yeah fair. so you still make it ahead of time just like okay you now you have a batch of let's call it 300 pretzels right you you just you make yourself available on postmates for the time that the but and and, you, and then you you just, as soon as you run out you turn it off we we have to do that so you could time. be on postmates for like two hours yeah oh interesting now could i be could shappy pretzel be on postmates if there's no building called shappy pretzel yeah absolutely really? yeah that's what ghost kitchens are. So, so like, right, right, right. That's like, why like you can have ghost kitchens. Well, like a, people out of like one restaurant will operate like six different Postmates, which concepts. is genius. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it a is in a way manipulative is, because <laughs> you're like, oh, this place is called but LA's best wings, and then that. you realize, oh, they're just the wings from the pizza. Place. I think I think it was innovative for a time, but it, it there was so much oversaturation. It's not, and I think people care about brands so much that like, I think there was a time. I remember when it first started and I was going on Postmates and I was like, what are all these there's things? 17 Philly cheesesteak places yeah, in yeah. Studio City? Yeah. What? Yeah, they're like probably all coming they out come of the same from? kitchen. And then, I, that, and then I, if, you, if you click on it and then you go to the address and then you Google map the address, you realize, oh, they're all coming out of the same place. Yeah, crazy. It's actually one cheesesteak place that has seven 17 brands. Yeah. And then it's like, well, if you're going to order a cheesesteak, no matter who you order it from, it's coming from us, yeah. right? But I think you should do this just to find out it's just, just yeah, because Diamond test. Bakery's open all the time. Yeah, so there's going to be people there. You might. I don't know if they'll fulfill the want to fulfill the Postmates orders for you. I guess you talk to them. But worst case scenario, you just put one person there. 
for like whatever that two three hours that they all they do is the postmate all orders. they do is fulfill postmates. Now, what about the fact that Postmates takes a lot of money from you? What do you and and my pretzels aren't that expensive? The pro okay that I would say that's one problem that's going to be specific. Like if somebody for pretzels, wants one three dollar and fifty cent. Yeah, pretzel, it's it's messed up. It's going to be like a twenty dollar pretzel probably. Well, how much does Postmates take? So that's another issue is it's based on how big your basket size is. So, so the larger your ticket size is, they'll oh, take a man. lower percentage. So, but because well, what if I only offer six pretzels as the minimum, that would, that would be a smart way to do it. I would guess if you want exclusive, cause that also plays into it, whether you're exclusive or whether if you want to be on all the apps, the Postmates, if you, I, I, if I had to guess without getting into specifics, it'll be 15 to 20%, but I, but I think you should bake that into your pricing. Yeah. So, so you, you, ra you raise the price a little bit. You, raise you, you do a minimum order of, let's say you have six pack of pretzels, exactly. 12 pack, whatever. Exactly. And then if I could cover the fees there, it's not like I have to, for, for shabby pretzel, I feel like a lot of the business comes from the catering. So if I could use Postmates as just a way to make sure customers are getting pretzels, us yeah, to the customer. exactly. And that would fulfill basically what the pop-ups fulfill. Exactly. Then it but, takes pressure off of me to do the pop-ups and it gets people eating the pretzels and it, it which will is, like, help the business. At the end of the, exactly. And, That's awesome. And, okay, good to know. Yeah. I have really good contacts at, at Uber. They've been great. Amazing. So I could start my own shappy pretzel out of Diamond Bakery, Uber Eat, Postmate, whatever. Yeah. I could have one of my staff members or myself be there for a few hours, make a batch. If nobody orders them, nobody orders them. Yeah. But if they do and we sell out, I close. Yeah. And I, 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 would, I should say you should probably promote. You could put your Postmates link up on Instagram. Let them Easy. know you're alive. Yeah. Oh, this is happening. Right. I'm doing this. I didn't yeah. know you could do that. Yeah. I thought... Diamond Bakery had to be the one on Postmates, and they would have to have Shappy Pretzel on their menu. Nope. <laughs> People are going to be able to just get Shappy Pretzel delivered to them? Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> I'm going to get them delivered. I don't like driving. I mean, the, the bakery's kind of far from me. I have just, you ever Postmates? I just posted a breakfast burrito this morning. Yes. Oh, I saw my, it on Carla. Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> you, said, you said breakfast and lunch is what you yeah. said. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Also, I was inspired by another one of your posts the other day, which was your In-N-Out order. Yeah. You were very specific about your In-N-Out order. Yeah. And I immediately got in the car and went to In-N-Out and just went to your Instagram stories. Copied and just it? Copied it. How did you like it? Delicious. <laughs> it was delicious. These are things that are happening that you don't know are I happening. I have no idea. That's what an influencer is. <laughs> You're an influencer. You influence me, and I just. I, but come on, In and Out is good. In and Out's great. So, so give me the specifics. Can, How is this order compared to your normal? Well, order? remind me of what it was because I. It actually, was a double single protein style. Yes. Raw onions, chopped chilies added. So a couple things new about that for yeah. me. Never had the protein style before. Okay. Loved it. Okay. I don't need the bread. Yeah. I mean, it's what you're in the mood for. I get the bread sometimes. Sometimes but, I get the bread too, yeah. but like I don't need it. It yeah. didn't like ruin it for yeah. me. In fact, it was great. It is great. Though. Did not know about the chopped chilies. Yeah. Didn't know that was an option. So Perfect good. little spice, little so sweetness. Good. It like uh, transformed the burger. Yeah. It was like, I was like, what is this? Grilled onions. Yeah. Fantastic. That's the animal style. Oh, yeah. that Because it's animal style. Add grilled. Yeah, that's right. I also... I mean, I've been in LA for 25 years. I know that there's like things you can do in In-N-Out. Yeah. I've just never really bothered to like yeah. do much research. Yeah. 
And so there's like little things I always do it in and out, which is, which is I do like grilled onions. I also like when they cut the burger in half. Never asked for that. Love that. I don't like. Did you do that for the protein style though? No. Okay. Because I knew that it'd be wrapped in the lettuce and, and if you cut it in half, it might it, it fall got, apart. Yeah, exactly. But I was like, but I always do get it cut in half when it's not the protein style. And I will say, I, I've learned this about myself. I don't love large. <laughs> how do you say this without it being fucking gross? <laughs> I just don't like like large things in my face. <laughs> I like small bites. Yeah. Yeah. I, and a lot of the things I like are big. Like I like big cheesesteaks and I like big Carla Cafe sandwiches and I like burritos. Huge. I always cut my burritos. In yeah. Mouth. Like yeah. I like to make big things into smaller bite sizes mm-hmm. so I could put them in my mouth as opposed to like up against my mouth. Right. I don't like having like a lot of stuff on my face after I take a bite yeah. and I have to wipe it off. Yeah. And there's when you cut an In-N-Out burger in half, it gives you like a very manageable corner. Yeah. To start at. To start at. Yeah. As I opposed like that. to like that thing. I know a lot of guys who, who would not like that. They like to like grab a yeah, giant burger feel- and smash it into their face. In fact, I remember I was doing a Wendy's commercial back in the day and it was for the Wendy's quadruple double onion burger. Uh-huh. It was not a menu item that lasted long, but it had four onions and two patties. Crazy. Onions done four ways. Crazy. Okay. There was. There was raw onion, I think you grilled that onion, in and out. By the way, really, that's something that they, yeah, yeah. This yeah. was like you on one burger was raw onion, grilled onion, onion rings, crazy, and like onion strings. Okay, like yeah. four different onions, yeah. and and I was I was I had to eat this burger on camera, and what you do when you eat a giant burger that's way bigger than your mouth is you you squeeze it down with your hands, yeah. so that it's small but, enough yeah. to eat. Yeah. But on camera, if you squeeze the burger, it ruins yes. the aesthetics of yeah. the other side of the burger, the, the, the side that's facing the camera. Right. Which has been like meticulously crafted uh-huh. for the camera. Uh-huh. There's all these tricks they do in food commercials to make By the, way, the what, food look where perfect. Is the bagel, where, for when you're doing a commercial, where is the food actually made? Is it, is it it's actually made by a Wendy's food burger? food designer. So it's nothing like from, an actual Wendy's burger. No, in fact, it's. Usually it's freezing cold. Okay. Because if it's hot, it's it it can it can things could change. Things can change. Yeah. So the colder the better. Yeah. So for example, like the cheese. That's why it's never a, melted cheese. Yeah, on a regular right? burger, you want it the, the cheese to kind of have a melt, mm. but like on on camera, you want the cheese to be like the perfect corner Square. coming right out of the burger yeah, and yeah, falling yeah. over the bread or whatever. And so after the first few times, I absolutely ruined what was called the hero burger Mm -hmm. because there was a bunch of us eating burgers, but mine was the only one in focus. Uh So my burger was the one that was being like meticulously (sighs) crafted and painted. Like they paint an edible sort of shine onto the bun. Okay. They, they do all, also there's lots of toothpicks in the burger to make sure that it stays totally perfect. So when you take the bite, if you mess it with, if you mess it up with your hands, you're kind of ruining the shot. Yeah. So the director comes over and he's like, "Eat with your mouth, not with your hands." Uh-huh. And I'm like, "But I can't get my mouth around this like six inch tall burger, yeah, or seven inch, whatever." And he was like, "It doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, we're gonna cut. It's just really gonna show you biting into it. Yeah. It's not gonna show it coming out. So really, what you're, it's gonna seem weird, but just mash it into your face." 
Just open your mouth like you are going to be able to eat but it, it all. But it doesn't need a land And in just your mouth. shove it into your face. Yeah. Don't ruin what it looks like and we'll cut ah. people. And so I spent the entire day Banging a burger. shoving these quadruple onion burgers into my face. It was hilarious. And they're like, don't be a hero either. When we call cut, spit the burger into the bucket. <laughs> don't like feel like you're offending anybody because you're spitting it out. Uh-huh. Spit it out because uh-huh. you're going to have to take 7,000 bites today. <laughs> I'm really glad I learned that lesson when I was doing this movie. It was actually the same movie I referred to earlier today, Mank, the one with David Fincher. Uh There was a scene where I had to smoke a cigar. All all of us had to smoke a cigar. And it was a six and a half page scene. And David Fincher doesn't do pickups, meaning he he, he always shoots the whole six and a half pages. He doesn't start in the middle of the scene. Okay. Every other director is going to start in the middle of the scene if they just need one line or one little thing. He always does the full six and a half pages, which means... And he does the most takes of any director in the history of Hollywood. We did 200 takes of this one particular does, scene. Does that mean that he'll only use one of those scenes from start to finish? Not or necessarily. Or they'll still cut from different yeah, ones? Yeah, yeah. He'll, he'll still cut from different ones, but he wants the, he's a real artist, and he, he desperately wants the option to not cut away. He, wants, he always it. wants the option to have Played a straight. perfect scene. Yeah. And to have a perfect scene is actually impossible when you watch can you tr- can you when you watch tell movies, which take is which can you tell if something is taken from like can you tell if if something was actually shot from start to finish and, and oh 100 because you could tell a lot of times you're like i didn't make that choice i didn't go from no even i'm saying if it's not your own content oh yes i see it all the time i see, see it. it with a lot of times you see it because the continuity's off like that guy's collar just went down and now it's back up <laughs> So there's obviously from a different scene. Now, something as obvious as a collar being up and down, normally fix the, the script supervisor on set is going to go, you need to put the collar down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's more subtle things that I just know. I, okay. I see it all the time. Okay. Like when people have curly hair, I, I'm like, that just changed. <laughs> because like my hair, there's no way. We'll say the same. A hair person's going to be able to make my hair continuous for an entire day. There's just no way. Let's all right. Let's go back to the cigar thing real quick. I because of that Wendy's commercial, I knew. Do not put that fucking cigar in your mouth ever. Just hold it. Just do whatever you can for six and a half pages to not actually puff the cigar. Every other actor in the scene was puffing away. And they were loving it. Like, we're, we're in a David Fincher film, and Gary Oldman's in the scene, and I'm smoking That'll a cigar. That'll mess you up that night. But, like, we day. did 200 takes of six pages. How many cigars are you guys each going through? Or the ones that are puffing? We all went through 200 cigars, 200, and there was six of us in the scene, and we did 200 takes. We went through 3,000 cigars. The night. thing about cigars, too, because I, I smoke them sometimes, is, like, in the moment, but, like, later that night. It sucks. Oh, my oh, God. The next horrible. day, oh, you feel horrible. next day. And so I was like, we had a, the guy who brought the 3,000 cigars to set. And I was making fun of him. Like, dude, you got enough cigars there? And he's like, I hope. And I'm like, oh, no. This is going to be a long day. He's like, I have 3,000 here. I hope that's enough. Also, we shot this scene in someone's home. Can you imagine? Oh, my God. Like, uh, the home, the, it was a private residence that was the set that day. Can you imagine if one person smoked one cigar in your apartment right now? Yeah. It would smell I've, for a week. I've done it. Can you imagine 3,000 cigars being smoked in here? <laughs> 3,000! This place is going to smell like cigars until they rip it down. <laughs> and so I talked to the guy who brought the cigars. He was also sort of like an expert in cigars. So I was like, all right, well, this is 1930. What would my character potentially do before he smokes the cigar? He's yeah. like, well, 
Some guys like to bite the cigar. Some guys like to cut the cigar. Uh-huh. If you bite the cigar, it's going to take a little bit more time to get it to where you want to smoke it. I'm like, oh, perfect. I'll do that. That'll, that'll take two pages. Okay. He's like, and then some people like to take the sticker off. They like to either undo the sticker or slide the sticker uh-huh, off uh-huh. and keep it intact like a circle. Okay. Done. That'll take up two pages. Okay. He's like, you have these old school oil, oil lighters. So they don't work great always. They're not yeah. like our current big so lighters. Take a bunch of time so maybe you could it. maybe it doesn't light well. Uh-huh. And then you could also go to light it and then start because you're talking, you stop the lighting process yeah. and you yeah, talk. Yeah, yeah. And so I what I de- basically developed was a sub story in the scene of why I was not smoking that cigar. There was like So I, it actually just never gets lit. I never lit it. Everybody else smoked. Uh, 200 cigars and was were green by the end of the day. Throwing up, green, totally sick, and I was fine. I was I could have done another 200 takes. Everybody else was dying. Like I thought we were going to kill Gary Oldman. I'm like we're going to kill one of the greatest living actors today. Like he looked like shit at the end of the day. Literally looked like green. Oh my god. So yeah, I'm glad for that Wendy's commercial because when I finally got to that cigar scene, I was like I, I could hear that guy saying, eat with your mouth, not with your hands. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God. I had like 50 burgers that day. <laughs> I can't do that with cigars. <laughs> if it was a French fry scene, I would have been fine. Ah, uh, it's so good. You know what I mean? Tacos would have been cool. <laughs> Cigar, no. Nah. All right. I think we, we went long. We did amazing. I think this was fucking awesome. There's, I feel like there's still... So much stuff we didn't touch on. Like, I, I would have wanted to get into some specific roles you did. Oh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And we never really, we never even gave the people the Shappy pretzel The story. pretzel thing. So, well, the, the Shappy pretzel story, they will get when they come and get a Shappy pretzel. Okay, they'll do that. But, I, but if you're like open to it, but if you're open to it, I'm down to do a part two of this. I love this it. I, was, <laughs> I don't you. think I've ever been on a podcast that didn't need a part two. <laughs> I don't shut the fuck up. That's not my thing. Well, Shutting up is not my thing. Adam, I love this. You're Thank the man. You so much Thank for coming, you. Thank, Thank you. This is Getting the Bay Red by Getting the Carla Cafe from Obby. Please subscribe to get one to see more of our podcast. Bye.